0: This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit garynorth.com forward slash free books to download this book as a PDF. Through New Eyes Developing a Biblical View of the World James B. Jordan Copyright 1988 Published by Wogelmouth and Hyatt Brentwood, Tennessee There dwells the Lord our King, the Lord our Righteousness, Triumphant over the world and sin, the Prince of Peace, on Zion's sacred height his kingdom still maintains, and glorious with the saints in light forever reigns. Thomas Oliver's The God of Abram Praise, Stanza 7. 16. The World of the Temple After Israel had been settled in the land for a while, the Mosaic heavens and earth began to wear thin. Once again the nation began to break out of the seams of the covenantal garment, and a new covenant began to be anticipated. The History and Decline of the Mosaic Establishment In terms of social polity, Israel was governed by elders over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, with one or more supreme judge as final court of appeal. These judges also led the people in war when the nation was attacked. As the nation developed, however, the population increased, there was more and more of a national spirit developing. Actually, a two-nation spirit developed, with a northern Israel ethos centered in Ephraim, and a southern Israel ethos centered in Judah. God had said that eventually a king would come out of Judah, but only when he was ready. Genesis 49 verse 10. For a long time, most of Judah was disqualified to hold public office because they were descendants of bastards. Genesis 38. And bastards were excluded from public office until the 10th generation. Deuteronomy 23, verse 2. Accordingly, none of the judges in the book of Judges was from Judah. The genealogy at the end of Ruth is designed to show that there were ten generations between Perez and David, so that David was a legitimate Judahite king. Still, Israel failed to see the Lord as their true king, and lusted after human kings. The desire for a human king was thus both an anticipation of the next covenant, and also a symptom of moral decline. In terms of symbolic polity, we see the tabernacle turning into a temple. The Hebrew word for temple also means palace, and God's temple was simply his earthly palace. Such a palace temple is associated, however, with the time of Israel's kings, where they too dwelt in palaces. The tent of God corresponded to Israel's dwelling in tents. Once Israel settled in the land and built houses, it was natural for the tabernacle to become more house-like and less tent-like. Since the tabernacle stayed in one place for a long time, it was natural for other buildings to be built around it for storage, to house Levitical assistants, to house the increasingly extended family of Aaronic priests, and for other purposes. Thus, the tabernacle at Shiloh grew into a temple complex, and the area was called the Temple of the Lord. 1 Samuel 1, verse 9, 3, verse 3. Of course, the tabernacle itself continued to be what it had always been, A tent of curtains and boards set in sockets on the ground. The outlying buildings, however, created a palace complex. What was to come could not be envisioned, of course. Israelite political philosophers doubtless meditated on the king to come, but had no idea that he would sustain as close a relationship with the Lord as came to pass. They may not have realized that the king would have a small, professional, permanent army. Certainly, they would not have guessed that the country would be divided up into administrative tax districts that were different from the tribal divisions. 1 Kings 4, 7-19 Just so, Israelite liturgists may have speculated on a fuller temple to come, but they would have had no idea that the labor would turn into a huge bronze ocean riding on the backs of twelve bulls, or that there would be ten golden lampstands in the holy place, with silver lampstands in the courtyard, or that there would be 10 water chariots in the courtyard or that there would be two huge pillars on either side of the door first kings 6 through 7 chronicles 28 11 through 19 second chronicles 3 through 4 these new features were not simple extrapolations of tabernacle symbolism but were radical transformations of it the breakdown of the mosaic cosmos After the glory days of Joshua, the nation of Israel entered into a long period of slow decline. There were times of apostasy and times of revival, but basically, the course was that of decline. These were the preliminary judgments. The depth of the decline came when Israel was defeated by Philistia and the ark was taken into captivity. God also slew the high priest and his sons, 1 Samuel 4. This was the full judgment on the Mosaic establishment. The final judgment on the Old Covenant is always simultaneously an announcement of a new one, as we have seen. It was at this juncture of history that God intervened to raise up Messiahs to restore the nation. Two men were miraculously born of barren wombs, both of whom would be Nazarites, special warrior priests, all their lives. These two men were Samson and Samuel. Both men entered into their ministries at about the age of 20, the age of citizenship and military service. Numbers 1 verse 3. As we have already seen in chapter 14, the Ark plagued the Egyptians and made an exodus out of Philistia with spoils, First Samuel 5-6. This was the initial defeat of Philistia, but it took 20 years for Samson and Samuel to rebuild the nation to the point where they could inflict a major military defeat on the Philistines. For 20 years, Samson caused the Philistines to appear ridiculous by making sport of them, while Samuel toured the country teaching the Bible and raising up a new righteous generation. At the end of his career, Samson killed all five princes of the Philistines and most of the Philistine priesthood and nobility, Judges 16, verse 23, verse 27. With their leadership destroyed, the Philistines were easily defeated by Israel at the Battle of Mizpah, 1 Samuel 7, verse 9-11. The crucible of enslavement to Philistia, and remember, Philistines were Egyptians, Genesis 10, verse 13-14. Had the effect of rending the fabric of the mosaic establishment the israelite judge samson had to spend most of his time in hiding while samuel had to lay low as a result the system of judgeship in israel tended to break down also during the captivity the philistines removed all the weapons of the israelite militia the battle of mizpah was won only by a miracle first samuel 7 verse 10 even after this victory Israel was still dominated by Philistia, though not enslaved, and she still had no weapons. 1 Samuel 13, verse 19-22 As a result of this situation, the people demanded a king. Their fabricated pretext was that Samuel's sons were not performing very well as judges. We notice, however, that these young men were judging in Beersheba, on the border of Israel, about as far away from the center of national life as you could get. Moreover, their offense was bribe-taking, which was nowhere near as serious as the offense of Eli's sons a generation earlier, 1 Samuel 2, verse 12-17, 22-25. In addition, all the elders of Israel needed to do was ask that the men be removed from office. Instead, they demanded a king, 1 Samuel 8. They wanted a king like the kings of the other nations, that we also may be like all the nations, 1 Samuel 8, verse 20. This was not the kind of king God had in mind for them. God's king would be a shepherd, like David. He would rule by service as a servant of the people. The kind of king they wanted, though, would rule through fear and domination and would tax the people to death. Jesus summed up the difference in this way. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. Uh, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Mark 10:42-43. The crucible of Philistine enslavement also tore up the symbolic polity of Israel. When the Ark returned to the land, it was not placed back in the tabernacle, but was enshrined in Kiriath-Jerim. We are not told why this was, but Samuel was a leader in Israel at this point, and it must have been under his guidance that it was done. Not until the temple was built, a century later, was the ark restored to a house of God. During this century, when there was no central sanctuary, the people were permitted to offer sacrifices at high places, local holy mountains, analogous to the oasis sanctuaries of the patriarchs. Later, when the temple was set up, this kind of high place worship was no longer acceptable. For now, however, the nation was clearly torn apart, with no center, I believe that the rending of the tabernacle should be associated with the rending of the animal in the sacrificial system. It is a picture of death, and the building of the temple is a picture of resurrection. Nero Parim pil has shown that in John's Gospel, Jesus is pictured as tabernacling with his people before his death, and as a temple in his resurrection. Thus, what Israel experienced under God's judgment was a kind of death, and under his grace, a kind of resurrection. The temple would be a glorified tabernacle, a resurrection body, if you will. The building of the kingdom. The empty tabernacle was moved to Nob, 1 Samuel 21, verse 1, and later to Gibeon, 1 Chronicles 16, verse 39-40. The priests maintained it was a vacant house for God. Once Saul became king, perhaps God would have moved back into a tent. But Saul fell from grace almost as soon as he was crowned and the Philistines continued to oppress Israel. This corresponds to the wilderness period of Israel after she rejected God's offer to conquer Canaan, and David's wilderness wanderings illustrate this. After David defeated the Philistines, and Israel could settle down once again, God moved back into a tent. But even when David moved the ark to Jerusalem, he set up a separate tent for it, and did not move the tabernacle there. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 1, 37-38 God also smote the priesthood. Because of their sins, the high priest Eli and his two sons were killed the day the ark was captured. 1 Samuel 4 verse 18 In spite of his sins, the righteous Eli was more upset over the capture of the ark than at the death of his sons. God swore that the line of Eli, the line of Aaron's sons Ithamar, would no longer serve as high priest. 1 Samuel 3 verse Saul in his demonic fury slew all the priests at Nob including Eli's grandson, Ahimelech, 1 Samuel 22, verse 11 through 19. The son of Ahimelech, Abiathar, escaped to David and wandered with him in the wilderness until he came to the throne, 1 Samuel 22, verse 20. During David's reign, there were two high priests, Abiathar of Ithamar's line and Zadok of Eleazar's line, 1 Chronicles 24, verse 3. Abiathar conspired against Solomon, and Solomon deposed him from being high priest, 1 Kings 2, verse 26 through 27. This left Zadok as sole high priest and finalized the transfer of the high priesthood. Now, when there is a change of priesthood, there is of necessity a change of law. Hebrews 7, verse 12. The gradual changes in the priesthood during the century between the ark's removal from the tabernacle and its reenthronement in the temple were accompanied by gradual changes in the law. It is easiest to look, first of all, at the big picture, however. We have shifted from Ithamar to Eleazar. We have also shifted from tabernacle to temple. In social polity, we have shifted from judges and seers to kings and prophets, as discussed in chapter 11. In the kingdom, we now have a small professional army that protects the king and that serves as a buffer against attack while the militia is called up. To support the legitimate needs of the palace and the king, we have a system of taxation, and the nation is divided into tax districts that do not correspond to tribal boundaries, 1 Kings 4, verse 7 19 All of this gradually came into place. To summarize the transition, during Samuel's judgeship, the ark was at Kiriath-Jerim, and the tabernacle and high priest were at Shiloh. During Saul's kingship, the ark was at kiriath and the tabernacle at Nob, and the high priest in the wilderness with David. During David's reign, the ark was in Jerusalem with Abiathar, and the tabernacle was at Gibeon with Zadok. Under Solomon, the ark was re-enthroned in the temple with Zadok as a high priest. Putting all this together indicates that God refused to put the ark back into a house until the line of Eli was out of the way, and the transition to the new priesthood was completed. As we saw in the previous chapter, God sets up his new social polity, the human house, before setting up his new symbolic polity, the physical house. Thus, when Samuel made Saul king, he wrote a new constitution. Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom, and wrote them in the book, and placed it before the Lord, for Samuel 10 verse 25. It would be interesting to have a copy of this constitution, this new law which was placed before the Lord, that is, in the most holy place, along with the Mosaic law. We do not have it, however. To me, this is most significant, samuel's new constitution was a transformation of the mosaic law for the new covenant god has left us the mosaic law but has also shown us that it must be applied by transformation to a new covenantal situations such an application must be made by wisdom and thus wisdom literature comes into focus during the davidic establishment the books of proverbs psalms ecclesiastes and song of solomon were written either largely or exclusively by Solomon and David, and Job was probably added to the canon at this time. This fact strikes a blow against any simplistic and legalistic attempt to impose the Mosaic legislation in the New Covenant, but it also reminds us that the foundation of our social wisdom must be a careful consideration of that Mosaic law. From reading Samuel and Kings, and from a close study of 1 Chronicles 11-27, we can see many features of the New Constitution, a full study of this goes beyond the limitations of the present book, but we have already mentioned some of the changes, a small professional army, a system of taxation, a palace complex for the king. The most important feature of the new polity, however, was that the king must always submit to the word of the prophet, for the prophet is the ambassador of the king of kings. 1 Samuel 10 verse 8, 13, verse 8 through 14. It was precisely this that Saul refused to do And for his rebellion, he lost his throne. Throughout the books of Samuel and Kings, we find the interaction of the prophets with the kings. Good kings hearkened to the prophets, while bad ones rebelled. David defeated the Philistines once and for all. He also captured and secured Melchizedek's ancient capital, Jerusalem. For the first time, the entire land was subdued. Now at last, God could move into his capital city and build a permanent sanctuary. David wanted to build a physical house of cedar for God, 2 Samuel 7, verse 7, but God told him that it was more important that God have a human tree house. verse 10. David's own house, said God, would be his new human cedar house, Ezekiel 17. His new messianic community gathered around him. Only when that human house had been set up would God permit David's son to build him a physical house. The new heavens and earths. When a new heavens and earth is set up, first of all the world is rebuilt. The nations of the world are restructured, which meant in this case that the oppressive nations had to be defeated. In terms of the wider world, the new covenant meant that Israel now took her place among the nations as a kingdom, and was no longer immature in this sense. After the world is reconstructed, the land of Eden is recreated. As we mentioned above, it was David's task to reorganize the kingdom in a social polity sense. David had to deal with internal rebellions and thereby quieten the land. At the beginning of Solomon's reign, there were secession wars. The new land of Israel, unlike the old, had a capital city, Jerusalem. The new federal government in Jerusalem set up administrative districts for federal purposes, while the tribal governments continued to handle the affairs of the tribal republics. At last the land was at peace, and God was ready to plant a new garden in the new Eden. The new garden embraced the temple and palace complex on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. This is a significant change from the Mosaic establishment. There was now an Adam in the land, a king. The high priest was a supreme Adam in the garden sanctuary and had been since Moses' day. Now there was a supreme Adam in the land. The kingdom of God is moving outward from garden to land. The king's place adjoined and was connected to the temple or palace of God. 1 Kings 7, verse 1-12, 14, verse 28. The king was the son of David. David himself never lived in this palace. It was built at the same time as a temple. Remarkably, God refused to move into his palace until the palace of his vice-regent had been built. 1 Kings 6, verse 38, 7, verse 1, 9, verse 10. God and Solomon moved into their palaces at the same time. The symbolic polity. Let us first consider Mount Zion as a world model. Zion figures heavily in the Psalms as God's new mountain, because the temple was set on one of her hills. Zion replicates the three-story universe. At her northern extreme is the temple, a model of heaven. To the south of the temple, on Zion proper, is the city of Jerusalem, a citified Eden. The undeveloped mountain below represents the world. Below the mountain to the south, and a deep crevice in Gehenna, the pit, symbol of hell, or the abyss. Thus, Zion reproduces a north-south imagery of creation, as well as a vertical imagery of three-decker world. A second expansion of symbolic polity is seen in the Song of Solomon, also called Canicles. We have mentioned that with the Davidic covenant we have not only the world, land, and gardens re-established, but also a premier atom put into the land. This is the meaning of the king and of the king's palace being associated with the temple on Mount Moriah, between the temple and the Edenic city on Mount Zion. There is a parallel between the king's palace garden and bride and God's temple garden and bride, Israel. The Song of Solomon shows us Adam and Eve restored to the garden. The book abounds in garden or paradise imagery. We see the bride tempted to unfaithfulness. We see much talk of trees and fruit and the husband feeding the bride. Also, there is a great deal of architectural imagery and canticles, comparing the human body to God's temple. Thus, Christian expositors have usually seen canticles as a parable of Christ in the church, though it is also a celebration of the restoration of marital love. The temple, of course, is a major symbolic polity change. As the tabernacle symbolized the political cosmos of Israel in the Mosaic era, so the temple symbolized the political cosmos during the Davidic era. The temple proper consisted only of two rooms, the Most Holy and the Holy Place. The dimensions of the Most Holy were doubled, which made it eight times as large, while the Holy Place was twelve times as large. The temple itself was shaped as a stepped pyramid, its walls becoming thicker stage by stage as one approached the ground. First Kings 6 verse 6, Ezekiel 41 verse 7. Leaning on these stages were three stories of outlying rooms. The floor of the temple was no longer made of dirt, but of gold. 1 Kings 6 verse 30. The walls of the temple were engraved with cherubim and palm trees, symbolizing God's two hosts of angels and men. 1 Kings 6 verse 29. In the Most Holy, there were now four cherubim guarding God's throne. He sat on the wings of two, and the wings of the other two overshadowed the throne. This new arrangement was called God's chariot. And in Ezekiel, we see the four cherubim repositioned as the four wheels of the chariot. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 18, First Kings 6, verse 23 through 28. In the holy place, there were ten new golden lampstands in addition to the tree lampstand from the tabernacle. There were also ten tables for the utensils of the new lampstands, Second Chronicles 4, verse 7 through 8. Outside the temple was an open porch flanked by two huge freestanding pillars named Jachin and Boaz, First Kings 7, verse 15 through 22. Jacob represented the high priest and Boaz the king as the two servant guardians of God's kingdom. The design of these pillars symbolized ladders to heaven with the bronze shaft associated with the courtyard, the arboraceous collar representing the holy place, and the cubic lily at the top representing the most holy. Also in the courtyard was a huge bronze sea, 1 Kings 7 verse 23 through 26, 2 Chronicles 4 verse 2 through 5. This replaced the small labor of cleansing of the tabernacle. The bronze seat also replicated the temple, with its bronze bowl associated with the courtyard, the row of bulls representing the holy place, and the lily design at the top signifying the most holy. The twelve bulls under the bronze ocean were positioned in the same configuration as Israel's encampment in Numbers 2, and thus represented Israel and the land. There were ten huge fixed stands in the courtyard that held water, and that, though immovable, were made in the design of chariots, 1 Kings 7, verse 27-39. There were also silver lampstands in the courtyard to give light at night, 1 Chronicles 28, verse 15. The altar was greatly increased in size, 2 Chronicles 4, verse 1, and was separated from the laity by a low wall creating two courts and institutionalizing the separation of the layman from the altar that had been in effect in the tabernacle, 1 Kings 6, verse 36. All of this shows a tremendous increase in glory and in revelation, although the people still could see equivalent symbolism on the pillars in Bronze Ocean. The pillars, of course, were brand new, not extensions of anything found in the tabernacle. As mentioned, they had to do with the institution of kingship, which was a definitive change in the Davidic covenant. The change from tabernacle to temple forced some changes in law, for instance, the jealousy inspection of Numbers 5 could no longer be performed according to the Mosaic rules, since the water of jealousy had mixed with it the holy dirt of the tabernacle floor, Numbers 5, verse 17. And the temple floor was made of gold. Some kind of adjustment had to be made. Also, since the Levites no longer had the duty of carrying the tabernacle, they were given new tasks by David under divine inspiration, 1 Chronicles 24, verse 25, through 26, verse 32. History and Decline No sooner had the kingdom been established than Solomon wrecked it through sin. Samuel had portrayed a tyrant king in 1 Samuel 8, and both Saul and David at various times had filled the description, though David, unlike Saul, repented of it. Now Solomon became a tyrant. The people had been taxed and enlisted to help build the temple and palace. This was fitting for two reasons. First, they had demanded the king, so it was fitting that they build this palace. Also, however, the people had made contributions to build the tabernacle. After all, in part it symbolized them. So it was fitting that the people contribute to building the temple. Sadly, after these works were finished, Solomon continued to lay heavy burdens on the people. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 through 17, Moses provided the people with three laws of kingship. The king was not to multiply horses or gold, or take more than one wife. In 1 Kings 10, verse 14 through 11, verse 8, we find Solomon breaking all three of these laws. First, Solomon took in 666 talents of gold per year, in 1 Kings 10, verse 14. According to the Open Bible, a talent of gold in 1985 money would be worth U.S. $5.76 million. This means that Solomon was taking over $3.84 billion each year. This was hefty revenue for a country the size of New Jersey. Second, Solomon multiplied horses and chariots, 1 Kings 10, verse 26. Adding a few horses and chariots for the small professional army would not have been wrong, but Solomon went overboard. Finally, of course, Solomon committed polygamy, and his wives turned his heart away from God, 1 Kings 11, verse 1 through 8. This disruption in the spiritual environment of the covenant manifested itself right away in a rending of the social polity. As the ten northern tribes with God's blessing, seceded from the nation, 1 Kings 12. An equivalent disruption in the symbolic cosmos occurred when Pharaoh removed the gold from the temple and palace, and these were replaced with bronze, 1 Kings 14, 25-27. through 27. These were only preliminary judgments, however. There were good times as well as bad times during the kingdom establishment. Good kings listened to God's ambassadors, the prophets, and being blessed by God, were able to restore much of the gold to the temple. The kingdom of northern Israel was separated from the temple in Jerusalem. The people were supposed to go into Judah and worship God at the temple, but then return to their homes in the separate kingdom of Israel. Of course, the apostate kings of Israel resisted this, and sometimes even closed the borders to prevent the people from leaving the country to worship. 2 Chronicles 16 verse 1 Thus, for much of their history, the people in Israel were left only with synagogue worship, on one occasion, God provided them with proper sacrificial worship. When Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, Carmel means fruitful place. He built an altar, and God honored it. God would not accept such a non-temple altars, because he would not accept strange fire, fire that he himself had not lit. Leviticus 9, verse 10, verse 1-2, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1. On this occasion, however, God sent his own fire from heaven to consume Elijah's sacrifices. 1 Kings 18, verse 38 Elijah's altar was a model of God's kingdom. First of all, it was a symbol of the religious body politic of Israel, both north and south. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. 1 Kings 18, verse 31-32 as a cosmic model, the altar had a trench around it, for Gehenna, or the abyss. Wood was put at the top, to be burned for the sacrifice, of course, but also as a sign of God's arboracious garden, 32-33. The burnt offering on the wood reminds us of the animals in the garden. Then Elijah poured water all over the burnt offering and wood. Why? Not just to make it harder for God to light the sacrifice. Remember, Elijah had offered the sacrifice after three years of drought. 1 Kings 17, verse 1, 18, verse 1. The water pouring over the altar was a sign of rain pouring over the holy mountain of Israel, which of course was what happened that very day. Verses 41 through 45. The water washed over the altar and filled the Gehenna trench. Just so. As it rained, the brook Kishon filled with water and flushed the dead bodies of the prophets of Baal out of the Holy Land and into the sea, cleansing the land. Elijah's altar speaks clearly of the cosmic significance of the altar. The four elements found in the Garden of Eden trees, animals, water, and priests are all present there. The destruction of the altar by God's fire substituted for the destruction of the world represented by the altar. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. When we remember that the stones represented Israel, and that man is made of dust, we see that the destruction of this altar and its components signified the destruction of the world. The altar received the wrath that Israel deserved. The water on the altar was dried up, so that water could once again come to the land. Thus Israel was spared the judgment of God. The northern kingdom, however, slid downhill very fast and was taken captive by Assyria. The southern kingdom endured longer, but God eventually judged it as well. The last preliminary judgment is recorded in 2 Kings 24. Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and carried off the nobility, including such persons as Daniel and Ezekiel. He also carried off the gold of the temple, which was symbolically equivalent to these leading men. Israel refused to repent however, and so Nebuchadnezzar returned. This time he blinded the king, burned the city, burned the temple, and carried off all the people. After being told of the deportation of the people, we are told that he broke up the bronze pillars and took away all the bronze service utensils of the temple. Second Kings 25 verse 11 through 17. These small bronze vessels were the symbolic equivalent of the ordinary people, while the breaking up of the pillars, to which special attention is called, is to be associated with the destruction of the king. Summary The kingdom establishment can be set out as follows. New Names God No new name is really highlighted, but in David's prayer of 2 Samuel 7, when the Davidic covenant was made, the name used is Lord God, which in Hebrew is the Master, the Lord. Since the condition of the kingdom was that the human king recognized the Lord as supreme king, this phrase, Master, Lord, seems eminently appropriate. People The house of David is a new name here. Also, the name Israel comes to be associated with northern Israel, and thus with apostasy, while the name Judah comes to signify the relatively more faithful southern kingdom. Yet another name that comes into play is remnant, denoting the faithful in times of apostasy. Grant The city of Jerusalem as capital of the kingdom. Promise God will not forsake the house of David. Stipulations, sacramental, slight changes in the worship system reflecting the change from tabernacle to temple. Also, certain sacrifices were paid for by the king acting as chief layman. Second Chronicles thirty-five verse seven. Societal, the new constitution of kingdom, in particular the rule that the king hearkened to the prophet. Polity, church. Priests at Temple, Prophets, and Levites at Synagogues. State, Elders and Judges with King at the Top. Symbol, the Palace-Temple Complex.
1: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things but if we fail to put them into practice then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit